Okay, I've, I've been, we've been married for now, coming up to 20 years, isn't it? So it's been a long time. <laughs> we got married in Scotland because my wife is Scottish and I wore a kilt. My first ever kilt is the most comfortable thing to wear as well. And I had the right knees for it as well, which is good. But after, just after the reception dinner, this rather angry-looking Scottish lady with venom in her tone snarled at me and said, Assassinac in a kilt. Which translated is, an Englishman in a kilt, how dare you? Kind of thing, all right? I was ready to answer. With, I had an answer. And with every good intention, I explained to her my heritage. While over her shoulder, I saw my new wife trying to signal to me not to engage her. (laughs) Right? But alas, I had not become accustomed to her subtle warnings and continued in my defense. I told this lady that my ancestors had fled France and sailed to Scotland where they had settled in and married into the Matheson clan and we helped fight the McDonald's. All right? No, no, sorry. We helped, we married into the, we helped the McDonald's fight the Campbells. Get it right? Okay? So I can wear a kilt. I can wear the Matheson uh, kind of tartan. At this, her face darkened. I'm a Campbell, and stormed off. I asked Elspeth who she was, and she said, it's my mum's best friend from school, which says a lot. And the mother-in-law, yeah, I'm not going to go there. So, so why do I tell you this story? Well, despite my good intentions to persuade this lovely lady that I could wear a kilt, my good intentions did not win her over. So in our passage this morning, we see David's good intention. The newly conquered capital of Israel, Jerusalem, David City, they renamed it David City, where we see David settling in to his nice new cedar palace. Can you just imagine that? Yeah, nice veranda looking over, over the new conquered territory. And probably after the kind of, uh, he's looking around and he sees the, the tent of meeting fluttering in the wind, he turns to Nathan and says, here I am, living in this cedar palace while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now the ark of God represented God's presence and the covenant, uh, covenant between him and the people of Israel. The promise of great blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience of breaking God's law. Now the ark of God had been housed in a tent for more than about 450 years. And, And David may have felt that it was about time God had a fixed dwelling in Israel because now Israel was established. There was peace. There's no more fighting against the enemies around. Or maybe he felt guilty living in this luxury 
apartment, as it were, while God dwelt in a tent, and that was not becoming of the God of Israel. Why should... He should have, really, his own temple, bigger and better than all the other temples around, because these are false gods. He should have the best. I think this is a noble and good intention, don't you think? His heart was in the right place. And Nathan said, whatever you have in your mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now I like Nathan's attitude. Don't you? He presumed God's blessings on David. For God has been with him and blessed him in the past, so why not now? What struck me here and challenged me is, do I presume God's blessing on my life? Do you presume God's blessing on yours? Do you kind of presume God's blessing on your brothers and sisters sitting around you in Christ? Is it our default setting to expect and presume God's blessing on our lives? Or is that too presumptuous of us? Now, we're all different, aren't we? None of us are the same. It'd be pretty boring if we were all the same, wouldn't it? We have different personalities, different outlooks on life. Some see life as half full, and some see life as half empty. Optimistic or pessimistic, or realistic, as some would say. But what does God say? Romans 8, verses 31 to 32 says, What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Ephesians 2, one of my favorite chapters, verses 4 and 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Just from these two, there's many other verses I could quote. We could be here all day. I'm sure you would love that in this lovely sunny day. But God's default position, I believe, is toward us, is grace. Grace is his default position. Whether the answer is yes No or not yet when we pray. Even with our good intentions and for his work, he may still say no. But it's still grace. It's still his blessing. He is for us, not against us. I think it's a lesson for us to learn whether we are optimistic or pessimistic or realistic. My wife would be say she's realistic. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic myself. 
but you're more realistic, aren't you? You keep my feet firmly on the ground, which is good, because I need that, because I will go floating off into the heavens. I think it's a good lesson for us to learn that we should presume God's blessing on our lives. And it was, this will most probably possibly free us up a lot. Because I've seen that and I've heard this kind of thing of, oh, we have to wait for God. We have to wait for the green light. Well, I think God is about moving and keep on moving and keep on going. Don't wait for that green, uh, green light, but wait for that red light to say, whoa, this is the way. Walk ye in it. Don't uh, wait for the green. Just look out for that stop. And then, right, it's this way. That's uh, how I think Paul the Apostle operated. He just kept on going. He kept on pushing the doors. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 8 says, Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who seeks receives, and he, who's, uh, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Movement. God is a God of movement. He likes to move. He doesn't change, but he likes to move. He likes to keep on moving forward. So back to our passage. Nathan, Nathan gets woken up in the night. And God gives him the response to David's good intention. So verses 5 and 7 seems to say that God isn't really interested in the temple. He's never asked any former leaders of Israel for a house of cedar. He moved from place to place in the tent. He was movable, and he moved with his people. I don't think he wanted to be static and stuck in one place. Then from verses 8 to 9, God reminds David of his origins. A shepherd made king over Israel. A humble shepherd boy made to be leader over Israel. And it was through, through him they were overcoming their enemies. They found peace. And verse 10 says, promising to make his name great and provide a place for Israel through him, a safe place, a rest from their enemies, through David. But instead, of, it's, he, was gonna, he says that he's going to build a house for David. So though David says, I want to build you a house, he says, no, I'm going to make you a house. Now, this isn't a physical house because he's already got his kind of nice palace of cedar. So what does this house mean? Well, the house uh, in the Hebrew can mean many things. It can mean family, temple, and a dynasty. And in these few, in these few verses there is an emphasis and a greater emphasis building. So he, first of all, he says, your family. I'm going to build you a house, a family. And then he builds on the next, 
then your son, one of your sons, is going to build me a temple. And then he goes on a greater emphasis, and I will establish you a kingdom. I will establish you a dynasty. A succession of kings from his family line. God was faithful to his promise and a covenant with David. This was a covenant to David. This was a promise between him and David saying, I will establish you. Your house will be established forever. And for 400 years, there was no unbroken line of kings. Some good and some bad. But the fulfillment was not through them. The covenant was and will be fully fulfilled through Jesus, a direct descendant of David. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, promised and foretold. And we see full circle here that God wasn't really desiring a temple built with human hands to dwell in, but something far greater. Jesus and the temple of his body. For after Jesus, if you can remember, Jesus drove out all the money changers out of the the temple. Yes, and all the animals. Can you remember that? Yes, he drove them all out. And the, uh, the Jewish leaders come to him and say, well, what do you think you're doing? What's this? You know, give us a sign to think that you are you know, worthy of doing this. And he says, this is the sign. I will destroy the temple and build it up in three days. Now, this temple, this, uh, what Herod built, took 46 years. And he said he was going to tear it down and build it again in three days. And Jesus meant that it was his resurrection from the dead. Also, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil that separated the presence of God and the people was torn in two from top to bottom. The way was open. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, a new temple was established. A new family a new covenant, a new way, a new kingdom where Jew and Gentile are one people. And 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says, and you also, as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are part of, of the new temple, his church, his body. The church is not a building. The church is you. People who take the presence of God wherever they go. Movable, not in one place, but out there in the world making a difference. A building, a walking building for those who follow Jesus. For God has taken up residence in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. John 14 verse 23 says, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word 
and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. We are walking temples of God. That was his aim. Not a physical built temple, but mobile temples. Now, of course, we see the completion of the covenant of David in Jesus. But David does not know this. And Nathan reports the revelation to David. And David is humbled. That despite the no from God that he wasn't the one to build the temple. He receives God's assurance. His promise that his family, the temple, the kingdom, the throne and dynasty will be established forever. And what is his response? Who am I? A mere human being. And he worships God in verse 22 and he says, How great you are. There is none like you. Verse 23 and 24, he marvels at the grace and love and the establishment of God's name through his people Israel. How he performed great and awesome wonders to redeem his people. So he becomes their God above all the idols and all the other gods. Verse 25, David's asked God, he says, do as you have promised. Like David, we need humility to be in awe of God. That he has chosen such as we, mere human beings, to house this wonderful treasure of God. He has commanded the light to shine in to our hearts, this treasure in earthen vessels. God's default position is to bless us. So we need to presume his blessing. For it is by grace we have been saved. Even when our good intentions and the answer is still no, we trust him. We know what is best, uh, he knows what is best for us. And we need to stand on his promise that he is for us, not against us. He sees the bigger picture. He has a higher view, a greater knowledge. His ways are not our ways, or his thoughts are thoughts. He is a mystery. Accept that. He is a mystery. You're not going to get your head round him. You cannot put him in a box. But he has also given us access to know him better. So what is our response? The same as David's. For we need God's blessing on our houses, do we not? On our family, on our loved ones. To see our loved ones, our neighbors and our friends come to know Jesus as we do. That's what we're here 
We're here to love God, love others, and make disciples. Simple as that. Can we have um, verse 28 and 29 again? The I think we should pray this together. Brilliant. Shall we, uh, shall we pray this together before we come round the table? So, our Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servants. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Amen. That's our prayer. Each one of us are representative of our house, of our family, and we desire the Lord's blessing. His default um, position is to bless us.